Welcome to the Federalist Outpost. So I have the pleasure today of having Aaron Roberson with me. He is an employment attorney based out of Florida. And I wanted to talk to Aaron a little bit about the Brian Flores lawsuit. Um, Aaron, tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, thanks for having me here, Andy. Uh, you know, I started off, graduated from the University of Florida. Um, I was a former prosecutor. And then I started this employment law firm with my twin brother, Darren Roberson. His background, he worked with the EEOC, Department of Labor, big law firm. So he's been doing employment law since he got out of law school. And then I decided to join him. Now, you guys do discrimination work uh, fairly frequently, right? Yep. So what, what's that look like normally? I mean, what are those lawsuits typically that, that land on your desk? Uh, it's usually lawsuits like the Brian Flores lawsuit where someone is being discriminated against due to the color of their skin or their sex. Um, and we try to find ways to remedy it. But it's a huge problem uh, that we have in this country. And um, it's not as loud as it should be. So people don't think it's uh, that big of an issue, but uh, we deal with tons of cases where qualified candidates aren't getting jobs due to their gender or their race. Now, I, I think politically, you and I are on slightly opposite sides of the spectrum. I, I lean conservative. Uh, it, do you lean a little bit uh, liberal? Yeah, a little bit liberal. Yeah, you could say that. So, because I mean, Ed, a lot of what we talk about on this show is is designed for moderates. Because I, I think, and and I've said a few times that I believe most of the good work gets done with moderates. I think anybody who's too far out on the wings can't see enough of the other side's arguments to really be able to respond. And I, I don't think any changes get made on the wings. I think that's part of the problem we have in federal government right now is nobody bothers to listen to the other side. So you get a lot of you know AOC making a comment, and you get. Uh, you know, any one of the conservatives, Trump's a great example on the other side, and you never have any compromise. So nothing ever gets done. But, you know, you, you talk about how this is a fairly common problem in the country. And I know, in, in, correct me if I'm wrong, most of the work you do is in Florida. Do you have the ability to, to accept cases outside of Florida? Uh, yeah, there are opportunities outside of Florida. We've had some cases in Texas and Chicago and uh, where another attorney allow us in and then we can handle those cases. But um, just anecdotally, I mean, you hear about this all the time where, you know, the best candidate isn't always chosen. And sometimes it's due to race. Sometimes it's due to gender. Um, sometimes it's due to who you know. You know, and I think most of America can agree that, yeah, you want to hire the person that you know or, or someone that you have something in common with. And usually that hurts minorities in the long run. Now. When you say it, it's pretty common, um, I mean, obviously, this is your primary area of practice at this point, right? Yep. Now, are these typically bigger companies that you're, you're filing suits against, or are these smaller companies? It's a range of corporations, uh, large, small, mom and pops, uh, so long as they have the threshold level of employees. What's that threshold? 75 okay. uh, within a certain radius. Okay. So, or pardon me, 50 within a certain radius. So, I mean, they're, they're good sized companies. It's not like you're, you're filing lawsuits necessarily against the local convenience store or against the local mom and pop tool shop. These are sophisticated companies, typically with HR departments, right? Yeah, 100%, yes. Now, do you find when you're going through these lawsuits with the HR departments that there's a, a formalized hiring process, something that's objective? Or do you think that uh, there's a lot more of a subjective feel 
that goes into hiring sometimes? Well, um, there's almost always a mix of both where there are objective criteria. For example, this number of years of education, you need uh, this degree. And then there are the subjective components whenever you get down into the interviews where sometimes it's like, yeah, that person, they, they just, I think they fit the culture. They have the right fit for us. Um, or I really like the way that this person said this or that. And I feel like they're a leader whenever they don't have to provide any proof that they've actually uh, accomplished anything now, or leadership wise. When we talk about the NFL, and I mean, MLB is probably in the same boat. You hear a lot about locker room chemistry. You hear a lot about the positions that are getting picked based upon the type of culture that the person is going to bring to the locker room or the type of influence that the veteran is going to be able to bring. And you saw that, I think, I mean, we're both from Tampa. You saw that with Tom Brady. Yeah. hundred I mean, Nothing against Jameis. Well, Jameis Winston went to Florida State. I'm a Florida State alum. I'm all for him being successful here. He wasn't, unfortunately, as successful as you'd hope. But Tom comes in, and that's a whole different team. I mean, they, they play with a poise they didn't have the season before, and they played with a drive. So you've got that, that presence that goes into the way some of these guys in the NFL are graded and paid and employed on a regular basis. And I think, you know, before we get too deep into the Brian Flores stuff, do you think it's important that the coach has a particular culture uh, when it comes to the way that a locker room gets evaluated? I, well, yes, but at the same time, a lot of these coaches, whenever you've never been a head coach before, it's basically lip service. You can say, hey, this is the type of culture that I'll bring in. I would guess that a lot of the coaches say the same thing. We're going to be tough. We're going to be fast. We're going to be disciplined. We're going to make plays on offense, defense. We're going to be tough and we're going to bring a winning culture. And I doubt other coaches would say differently, you know, depending on the race of the coaches. I, I believe every coach would come in there and kind of say the same thing. And if you've never been a head coach before, it's a it's a crapshoot to believe this candidate is going to be able to change the culture. I mean, and you've got some experience coaching football. I mean, younger football, not NFL, obviously, but yeah, it, you know what I'm, I'm from a baseball background. We got, you know, somewhere between 11 and 20 guys in the dugout. It, that type of culture is very different. I think than a football team where you've only got 11 guys on the field at a time, but you've got 50, sometimes 60 guys on the squad. It, how important is that um, when it comes to having the whole squad together and being able to have them listen and develop the way that you hope that they will? I mean, yeah, as a coach, you have to have one heartbeat, but you also have to bend certain rules to certain players, but you don't break, you know, and uh, you want to get the best out of the players. And so we could sort of say, like, the differences between a Bruce Arians and a Bill Belichick. Bruce Arians is considered a player's coach. Belichick is considered to rule with an iron fist. <laughs> and but yeah. B.A. just won a Super Bowl last year. You know, so now we could, <laughs> I think we all know why <laughs> uh, Tom Brady, but yeah. BA had success prior uh, in Arizona to where he got to a Super Bowl. So uh, the culture, as long as you win, I, I, I and that's the, the most important thing. But yeah, controlling 60, 60 different personalities and having them all uh, chase one goal and uh, get rid of selfishness and yeah, it's, it's tough, but it's it's doable uh, if you're a leader and they look up to you and they know that you have their best interests and that you know what you're talking about. and uh, You find different ways to motivate them. But 
obviously younger kids are much different than the pros. You don't, with the pro motivation, you don't have to do that all the time. They don't need a rah-rah speech. They just want you to talk about the X's and O's and uh, be able to execute. So I believe it's slightly different, but yeah, as a head coach, yeah, you one heartbeat and you try to have these guys follow your message. Uh, you bend a bit, but you don't break. You know, and one of the things you hit on there was the the win loss. And it, it's easy to be in a good culture when everybody's winning. I think yeah, culture definitely. is one of those things where a team and, and who they really are changes based on what their record is. And if they're a horrible team and they're losing a lot, there's not a great culture and there's not great morale. If you're winning every game and you're winning it by two touchdowns or three touchdowns, I think your morale is likely to be through the roof, even with poor leadership, because something's working right. And that's all you care about. Definitely. So that's a good objective measure for a coach, I think, uh, is is win-loss record. I think a lot of people look at that, even though there's, frankly, a ton of things that go into that. Uh, you have a kicker who can't kick at the in the fourth quarter like Florida State had for decades against Miami. <laughs> and you lose a bunch of games you shouldn't have lost because your kicker can't kick all of a sudden. Um so I, I think that's one measure. It, it, in your opinion, is there anything else that's an objective measure of the value or the quality of a coach uh, at the NFL level, just you know, from an outside perspective looking in? The only other objective measure has to be experience, just how long you've been doing it. The rest of it is wholly subjective. I mean, even with the win-loss record, if you're a coordinator, you know, you're not the head coach and you're a coordinator and you're up for an interview to become a head coach, you the organization has no win-loss record that they could look upon and say, all right, that's definitely you. You're leading the organization. No, you're just calling the plays under the head coach's scheme. So uh, I would say the only other objective measure would be years of experience. Okay. So have you had a chance to look at Brian Flores' lawsuit? Yeah, I had a chance to go through it. And uh, I, I really like this lawsuit. I like the way that they... Um, they started this lawsuit and uh, it made a big splash. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about it. Honestly, I'm really excited. So it, in this isn't an area that I'm particularly familiar with. So I'm going to preface it with that. This is not my my bread and butter. But what do you see in here? What What is Brian alleging and what's he asking for? So Brian, he's alleging that uh, the league violated Section 1981, which uh, allows equal enforcement of contracts that white citizens would enjoy. The very uh, uh, 1862 type law, and uh, and it's still prevalent today. I use that law a lot. Um, what's great about it is that you don't have to go to the EOC and deal with the administrative side of it. But yeah, he's alleging that he wasn't given a fair shot due to his race and that other white coaches who have less experience, um, who have worse records than he had, were, giving, uh, were given longer leashes or given jobs. And that whenever it comes to himself and other Black uh, candidates, uh, they aren't afforded the same opportunity. So I think the NFL is a little bit more of a complicated beast than, say, uh, a massive insurance company. It's got a, a very structured process. You have to be with the company a certain number of years, complete certain trainings in order to be able to evolve and, and further your career and move up the food chain. Would you agree? Uh, not necessarily. The only difference here is that hiring in the NFL is a black box. We don't, us as outsiders, we don't know exactly what the clubs are looking for. And to us, it appears wholly subjective. Uh, 
But that happens also in large corporations as well. They may advertise for a job, but there are other subjective measures that are there that could end up discriminating against someone based on their race or gender. And with NFL, definitely race. So I don't, I, I wouldn't say that there's um, a huge difference here. It's just that we're so interested in the NFL and we hear publicly fines, disciplines, things of that nature. And we know how players get jobs through the combine, college, et cetera. But as far as coaches, we aren't 100% sure what makes a coach a head coach, what makes that person uh, even necessarily qualified to become a head coach because it's not public knowledge. So does that kind of leeway create kind of a problem for Brian to, to come in and say, look, you know, these guys are discriminating based upon skin color, you know, some other uh, arbitrary and frankly irrelevant uh, component of who I am. And rather than evaluating me on an objective basis, it, these guys, I don't think are subject to a union contract or anything like that. Are, are you aware of anything like that? The coaches, no, there's no CBA for the coaches. So that's just with the players, with the NFLPA, um, the coaches, they do their own things. They get their own agents to represent them and uh, negotiate contracts. And there are certain rules and things that they abide by. And so how do you, if you're Brian Flores, how do you go about proving the subjective intent on uh, an NFL owner? Because that's, that's really what you're looking at. And Jerry Jones, I think, is probably one of the better examples from the last 10 years, an owner that meddles a lot. I mean, he, yeah. he is perpetually tweaking stuff. He stays with Jason Garrett for God knows what reason and Wade Phillips before him for God knows what reason. But a lot of these owners have a particular vision. And how, how do you go about trying to uh, impugn the vision as, as having sort of a racist component to it? Is there a standard that you have to meet on that? Or is there a lot of subjective evidence? Uh, well, there is a standard and uh, you'd have to prove he has to prove intentional discrimination. Now, the way that he could do that is through direct evidence. So a smoking gun email, maybe something in John Gruden's email. So we don't know <laughs> or her uh, circumstantial evidence And the circumstantial evidence here is that look at how few black coaches there are in the NFL. Then you have Troy Vincent. Uh, I believe he's a VP in the NFL. He says it's a huge problem. Roger Goodell has come out and said, uh, yeah, this is a problem with us hiring minority coaches. Um, so whenever he points to that evidence and then throughout his lawsuit, he points to other evidences such as sham interviews due to the Rooney rule of uh, the percentage of black head coaches that are fired after winning seasons as opposed to white coaches. I believe he said that number is 25 percent. A black coaches get fired after winning seasons compared to 3% for white coaches. And consider this, a large number of white coaches compared to the black coaches. And so whenever you have that sort of disparity, I mean, you could use that circumstantial evidence to prove your case. Now, I know he mentions percentages, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cite to his uh, complaint for a second. In paragraph five, he's got some of the percentages that he cites as basis for uh, his belief that there's discrimination. Um, he says only one of the NFL's 32 teams, uh, 3% of the total NFL employs a black head coach. Only four of the NFL's teams, which is 12% employ a black offensive coordinator. Only 11 of the NFL's 32 teams uh, or 34% employ a black defensive coordinator. 
Uh, only eight of the NFL's 32 teams, which is 25%, have special teams. Uh, three of the NFL's 32 uh, have a black quarterback coach. Uh, and only six of the teams, which is 19%, employ a black general manager. It, there's, there's been some case law over the years on affirmative action about quotas. Yeah. And when I read through this, because, you know, I, we've, we've, we're both attorneys here. We both have gone through a lot of that case law, either as a part of law school or just part of our practices that we run into. Isn't it dangerous for him to say these numbers need to be a certain level? It, wouldn't that just establish a quota? If he was trying to establish a quota, that would be an issue. But what he's doing is he's pointing to the pool of coaches that are made up of the NFL players, which is 70%. And then he's just pointing out the numbers. He's not saying it has to be 70% blackhead coaches, but what he's showing is that, okay, only 12% are offense coordinators. Why is that? And then we've heard the rumors that in order to become a head coach today, you have to be an offensive coordinator. So whenever you look at these numbers, so these numbers that I see in his complaint, he's just pointing out the stats. He's not saying that uh, these numbers need to reach a certain threshold necessarily, although you could read into that. But I think the greater point of his lawsuit is that it just needs to be a fair shake. Well, and so he, he lists specifically in paragraph 23 what he wants out of the lawsuit. And he goes into, uh, I think he says, among other relief sought, uh, he seeks an injunction. And the injunction's terms that he's looking for uh, include increase the influence of Black individuals in hiring and termination decisions for general manager, head coach, and offense and a defensive coordinator, uh, ensure diversity of ownership by creating a funding committee dedicated to sourcing Black investors to take majority ownership of NFL teams. Uh, ensure diversity of decision-making by permitting select Black players and coaches to participate in the interviewing process. I'm not sure what he means by select. It sounds too exclusive for my happiness. <laughs> um, but then he goes on to increase the objectivity of hiring and termination decisions for general manager, head coach, and offensive and de defensive coordinator positions. It, forgive me, this starts to sound like union decisions. It starts to sound like, okay, in order for you to be able to hire a head coach, you need to hire somebody who's checked these 12, 13 boxes. And these teams are, are franchises. This isn't a large corporation. The NFL is a corporation. I think it's a nonprofit. God knows how that works. But it's not as though the NFL exercises direct control over the teams and their hiring decisions. They hardly exercise control over team ownership. I think they have a veto right at some level, but they really can't tell you whether or not Jerry Jones is going to go on and be an idiot and draft all kinds of players that are no good, kind of like the Oakland Raiders did uh, way back when, I think it was what, Jamarcus Mo Russell that was so bad. Yeah, but way it's crapshoot. Like I said, big guy, 6'5", 300 pounds, has a rocket of an arm and just came and, off the national championship. So it's hard to say no. Yeah. Well, he has, all you got to do is put a buffet table in front of him and see what he does. <laughs> I mean, he, he couldn't get five feet from a buffet table. <laughs> Him and Vince Young, and they're so exciting to watch in college. And so then, you know, again, this is this is what we were talking about earlier. This is a gut instinct. I love Vince Young on NCAA football. You could win every game with Vince Young <laughs> because he's so fast. He's got a massive arm and he's accurate. You get him in the NFL and he's making questionable decisions because that speed of game changes. And he can't mentally process all of those things going on at the same time without panicking. 
a lot like uh, Johnny Football, whatever his name actually was. With Manziel. Yeah. yeah, him. He's terrible. But he, again, amazing college player. He gets there, he freaks out, and he's worthless. Um, you know, it, he's, in by he, I mean Brian Flores, he's asking for a structure to be put over private organizations, 32 of them, requiring them to meet these particular thresholds. At, at what point in time do these owners no longer really own their own football teams? I mean, part of ownership is control, yes. Um, but the owners, they don't have to agree to this. I mean, this is, he's providing solutions uh, that he thinks will help the situation. The owners, they can say no, um, that we don't want to do this. I doubt a court will enforce this injunction and force the owners to do this unless they go through the EOC, which he says he is going to do. Then that's a different story. But yeah, I mean, ensuring diversity of ownership by creating and funding a committee dedicated to sourcing black investors. I mean, the NFL, they can do that. I mean, the owners, they could do that if they'd like. Um, do I think that solves the problem? No, because there'd only be a few black owners, if anything. I think the issue is the Rooney rule that was implemented. Um, and it's a rule that people say we should abolish, but how about we say the owners, they follow this rule, they agree to it. And that's the problem. So if they end up agreeing to something like this, who knows if they'll end up following through with it. I mean, is there, do you have any concern about legal precedent that gets made here, right? Let, let's say Brian Flores wins, right? And Brian Flores uh, gets his injunction and the NFL has to start making race-based hiring decisions. And the argument being that they're discriminating against a minority. Now, if you do a calculation every year of how many players are what race inside the NFL, and then you require hiring of coaches to be roughly that, it not that a slippery slope into creating additional discrimination? I would, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that a bit. That, uh, But for example, for him to win this, he would be proving that this is years of quote unquote, systemic racism. And uh, so how would you propose changing it? For example, given your scenario that he wins this so that he proves that the NFL has been discriminating for X amount of years and uh, they're discriminating against black coaches. And well, how else could we fix it? You know, and uh, would it be a slippery slope for a court to say, yes, you have to do X amount? Yeah, yes, definitely. Definitely. Well, but what if it, what if you go to a completely blind, a, a race completely off the table, uh, start giving people who are applicants numbers and don't give them much more information than that that's personally identifiable. What if you go to a completely blind system? Where, where's the inherent flaw with that? That the owners will continue to do what they've been doing, where the room rules in place, it says you have to hire a, a interview a black, a black coach, black candidate, and give them a real chance, uh, a fair shake. But before that interview happens, a bunch of these owners already know who they want to hire. And so even if we have these numbers on resumes without names, I mean, the coaches, they're still are the owners. They'll, they still know who they want to hire and they'll do the same thing that they're doing with this Rooney rule. So I don't I, honestly, I don't a number blind uh, putting a number on a resume. I don't I don't think that'll help either. I just. I mean, more so we should as fans, if we said, hey, 
what's going on here? Why isn't Eric Bieniemy, Super Bowl winning offensive coordinator, why hasn't he gotten a job? Like we'd really like to know. I mean, you guys tell us about whenever a player gets fined for having their socks too low, you know, or uh, if a player does something wrong, then we hear about it immediately. But whenever it comes to these hiring decisions, as fans, we hear nothing. So if you don't have a, a control from the top, right? So NFL has been dragged into this. Most of the quotes inside of Flores' lawsuit refer to things that Goodell, vice presidents, other people in the NFL, not in the organizations themselves, give or take Bill Belichick and the Patriots aren't involved. Yeah, But you're going to get to this point where you've got 32 teams and he may not say the word quota directly, but that's what he means. He means we need to have an additional number of minority coaches to get hired to this position. And let's say you've only got one position that year. Well, only one head. I mean, you know, that never happens. Let's call it three or four. You got four head coaching positions that year that are legitimately available. And are you going to require, which of those owners are you going to require to hire somebody that may not be their first choice, but have to hire them based upon a race-based decision? And that's what, I don't think that the way that I'm reading this, I don't contemplate that scenario uh, coming to fruition, say if he wins. I, I just don't see that being the uh obviously that wouldn't be the way to solve this what you really want are for the owners to do the right thing hire based on merit yeah. uh, not just who they know behind the scenes who they feel comfortable with um obviously that's a a small component but whenever you have a bunch of black coaches who have no um relationships with these owners i mean it it uh, puts them at a huge disadvantage. A lot of these coaches that are getting hired, a lot of them, it's family. So, you know, you look at this and, and you think, okay, this is going to help minority coaches, uh, presumably non-white. Now, let, let's talk about minority versus not minority for a minute, because I think that's important. Um, it, his lawsuit calls out white people, just flat out. I mean, he uses a line um, somewhere in here that says, you know, a white man was hired. I think it says shortly thereafter, Vic... Fangio, Fangio, I have no idea how to pronounce that. A white man was hired to be the head coach of the Broncos. And it, I took it as a somewhat derisive comment. Uh, you know, oh, yeah, it's another one of those guys. In the NFL, I, obviously the NFL's player composition does not reflect the nation as a whole. Um, you know, it, when we talk about minority, do we talk about minority in, in terms of the nation? Is that something as an employment attorney you're looking at? Or are you looking at Minority in terms of the entity that you're suing. Minority in terms of the entity. I mean, he has to specifically say that you discriminated against me because I'm black and you hired a white person. He has to use those words in the lawsuit. Um, yeah. And so that's what you're looking at, the way that they're treating black coaches, because obviously this case is a class action. So he's including every black Head uh, potential candidate for head coaching, quarterbacks coach, defensive, offense coordinators, GMs, special teams. Um, yeah, so he has to put that language in there to point to the fact that white men, as <laughs> derisive as it may sound, are getting uh, are being treated better, and that he's being discriminated against because he's a black man. So what happens to the NBA? So you win this case, right? Yep. You get even if you don't get the injunction, which I think the injunction, I agree with you, it's a stretch. To compel someone else to do something specific is not usually what the legal system is utilized for, give or take criminal law. 
it normally you sue for damages. Damages are, are typically money. And I think Flores has a much higher chance of being able to recoup finances from this and saying, look, you know, I've lost X number of years of my career, which I've been paid X number of dollars simply because of my skin color, not because I don't deserve a job. Uh, and I, I think he's got a better case there. But what do you do when, when he wins that case? And then you have a league that is predominantly a minority. So, you know, the NBA is the easiest one that comes to mind. I have no idea what MLS looks like, or, or you know, you can make the argument about the NHL probably being everybody from Eastern Europe and Canada. Mm -hmm. But what, how do you see that impacting some of those other leagues where minority is the, the main course of action and there's very few of what would otherwise be considered majority uh, applicants? Well, uh, in the NBA, they don't have this problem. They have a ton of black coaches that, uh, I mean, no one is saying that because the league is in the NBA, because the league is 90% black, which I, I don't know the exact percentages in the NBA, but that there needs to be 90% black coaches. But the NBA, they've st stayed ahead of this and they've kind of stayed out of the way because of their hiring practices in which they have a ton of minority coaches. Um, and so when you compare the NBA to the NFL, the NBA scene is much more liberal player friendly as compared to the NFL scene like Iron Fist and um, the owners are 100% in control and the players have little power. So the NBA, they've kind of stayed out of the way of this because of their hiring practices. So I don't see it affecting the NBA. I don't see this as a precedent either, unless, for example, if you, uh, unless they prove that uh, people are being discriminated against due to their race with hiring practices. So if the NFL loses this case, it's not like the uh, Brian Flores will be able to have this case or his attorneys and say, look at this case now, NFL or NBA, NHL, uh, pay attention, look at this, this is what can happen to you. Well, no, I mean, the person, the next plaintiff, say for an NHL team, would have to go through the same process and uh, prove discrim intentional discrimination, which would be much more difficult in the NHL because I've only seen one black NHL player in my entire life. So it'd be much more difficult to do so. Uh, yes, I don't, I think a win in this case will be a win for all the black coaches, uh, in the NFL that, um, that they know that they'll be able to get a fair shake, you know, and that, but in that the rest of the world is like, all right, yeah, well, yeah, NFL, you guys were discriminating. Well, and I, I agree. I think that if you find that discrimination is the determinative factor in something, uh, then A, you're, you're doing a disservice to the company that you're working for in the first place because you should be hiring on the highest qualification. Exactly. It, that That's part and parcel. We want to get better. Every position that we do, you want to have the best person for it. If you're doing something other than that, you're either running a company poorly or you're discriminating or you're doing something that's either illegal or just dumb and frankly, probably both. But my question was towards the other direction. At, at what point in time, because I think we're going to approach this probably within our lifetimes, we are going to be as a nation, a collection of minorities. And, and frankly, I think we're there just, we've divided ourselves into so many smaller subcategories. We've got African-Americans, we've got Hispanics or, or Latinos, Latinas. And then we've got uh, Asians now. We've, I know where we live, we have a large Indian population. We've had uh, a Chinese population, a Korean population. And then we've got the subdivide breakouts uh, of gender. And so really where we're at, at this point is, Almost everyone is a protected class at some level or another, except for white men. 
And once you've gotten to that point, and white men are obviously not more than 50% of the country, where, where does it stop being uh, discrimination against minorities? Is it, is it always going to be a minority question or is it going to be discrimination against a particular protected group? Well, uh, under the law, it doesn't say minority. I mean, everyone's protected by this law. So if you're a white man, you go in for a job at the post office that's in a community that's 90% white and but the workers there are 90% black and then you go in for an interview. And then the, the guy, the people that are interviewing, they're all black and they've never hired a white guy in the past 20 years. And then you go in for that interview and then you get denied and you have the best qualifications. You worked at a post office somewhere in another town for like 10 years and you're one of the better workers and then you get denied. I mean, you have a case under Title VII. So this law protects everyone. Now, will there be a segment of the population that just sees white men under attack? Of course. I mean, just like there's a segment of the population that will always see black men, Latino, Asian under attack. That's just uh part of this melting pot that we're in, you know, uh, but the law title seven protects everyone. So I think, you know, the point there that, that is the viewpoint of race first on this shouldn't be necessarily the take home on this. It's that discrimination in general is wrong. And so, well, of course. you know, Brian, Brian tends, I mean, Brian's black, but if this were a, a Latino culture, if this was uh, somebody from India that it's got the same application across the board. And so rather than, than having this be a contest between one race versus another, as far as who the candidates are, it, it's more about best practices. Do you think that's sort of a fair analysis? Uh, yes and no. So the reason why um, this is more so about black coaches is Brian's theory of the case is that the pool of coaches come from former NFL players. and former NFL players, the more majority of NFL players, they're black. And so if there's uh, an Asian man who's going through the league and went through what Brian went through, started out as an assistant scout, worked his way up for 20, for 15 plus years, and then he gets to the top, he gets an interview, he gets denied, he may have a harder time pointing to statistics to help his case uh, for circumstantial evidence. But at the same time, he, there will be other ways that if he could bring in circumstantial evidence from the previous case, he'd still be protected by this law. But it'd be much harder for him, uh, just evidence-wise, evidence, evidence -wise, not uh, due to a uh, kink in the law that mostly protects Black people. So uh, as I look at this, if, if you're the Dolphins, right, or you're, you're somebody else that's involved in this, I think the Giants are the first name uh, team, I, I think they're probably going to try to make this less about the group that's protected and more about Brian Flores individually. And, you know, I think Brian, even though it's filed as a class action, he's got Eric Benamy in here who, you know, again, like you said, he's, he's, he deserves a head coaching job. I think frankly, Brian, uh, Byron Leftwich does. Yeah. Uh, I'm stunned that Byron Leftwich is still out there. Although I, I looked around at most of the head coaching positions that got filled this year and there were no urban Myers somebody who stood out and you're like, this guy does not deserve a job on this. Well, there was a close one, Josh McCown. He almost got that job, but, oh. <laughs> but the fans and the media and they're kind of beating up the NFL about that. Now McCown so. is an interesting, I mean, it's a rumor. I don't think there's anybody that's confirmed that McCown was going to get picked. I mean, there are a ton of reports and I, obviously we aren't insiders. Uh, so we don't know, but I mean, 
for that to come out of nowhere uh before i think that was before the brian, brian flores issue that uh there are reports surfacing about josh mccown the former nfl quarterback who's now a high school quarterback coach yeah. becoming the head coach of the houston texans um so and that's that's one of those things i mean again and i'm i'm from the mlb side of the world that's i grew up paying attention to baseball you would see occasionally some coach that had never had i, I forget who it was that went straight from front office work to be a head coach sitting in the dugout every day. And you look at that and you go, that, that is just stupid. And I don't think it turned out well. I forget who it was. Uh, I do think he hung on for like two seasons somewhere up north, Minnesota or Milwaukee or something, and he did a terrible job. I, I think Josh McCown probably would make Brian's case a lot stronger. Uh, I don't know that it would make it bulletproof because, again, none of us sat through any of the interviews that, that Brian had. And but when I, you're looking, I would have to ask you this question. Do you think a black guy would have, who was a QB coach for his son's high school football team, do you think he would have gotten a, gotten an interview? If he's Mike Vick? And, yeah. Yeah, if he's Michael Vick and Michael Vick, the, the rumor on Mike is that he never studied until he finally got to Philadelphia. He went to prison. I mean, come on. No, I, I don't think uh, a black guy who coaches his, his son's high school football team only as a quarterback coach, doesn't call any plays. Is not the head coach. I don't think he'd get an interview, and if he did, it definitely wouldn't be a serious one. Well, and I don't, I don't argue with you that the position that Josh McCown should have been considered was a good one. I, like I said, I think that goes in favor of Brian uh, Brian Flores's case because at the end of the day, you do you've got a high school football coach. Yeah, he's got NFL experience, but he's not somebody who's going to be able to run a massive NFL organization. I mean, you don't even know if he's got the right media training to be able to handle somebody. Uh, asking them pointed questions, you know, for 45 minutes a day, every day, the way those head coaches have to deal with it. But I, you know, I do think that there's probably a lot of candidates out there that somebody has floated the idea, you know, at Donovan McNabb um, for a while. I, I think, um, uh, what's his face, wide receiver, Deion Sanders, uh, as a head coach, suddenly from a, a college uh, perspective, it, you look at that and you go, okay, you, there are some historical precedents for a coach coming out of nowhere who suddenly is good. But you've got, for every one of those... I've, I've never seen that in the NFL, though. Well, but, especially for a black coach. Well, and, and Dion, in his defense, he was actually the offense coordinator for his son's high school football team. Oh, wow. So he'd be more qualified than Josh McDowell. So I, but I've never seen it. I've in the NFL, I've never seen it before. Um, and then now, could it have been the media just making a buzz about nothing? Yeah, but I mean, it was a pretty loud buzz. And then out of nowhere comes Lovey Smith, who they hire, who, who no one was talking about at all. So it, it kind of gives more proof that our circumstantial evidence, and depending on how you look at it, that they were going to go with Josh McCown, who is objectively, at least to us, because we don't know the exact measures to become a head coach in the NFL, but objectively seems unqualified. Well, and I, just does. I think, you know, and we're talking about the Texans with, with uh, Lovey Smith. Lovey was the defensive coordinator the season before. And as you and I talked about before we, we started recording, uh, he had had a fairly interesting question posed to him uh, about interviewing. I, I didn't see it. I assume you saw the question. Yeah, I saw it. What, what was he asked exactly? He was asked, when did he become a finalist? Point blank. <laughs> That's what he was asked. And he never answered it. He danced around the question. He said, when you're working for somebody, you're always interviewing. That's what he said. Well, and so, and so what kind of a witness does that make for you? Right. Because 
here's a guy, and, and he may have been a, a direct and immediate beneficiary of Brian's lawsuit. And, yeah, which I think he definitely was. Well, and I, I think reasonably anybody looking at it would believe that. Whether or not that's true behind closed doors is difficult yeah. to say. But that's as the plaintiff's side attorney, that's your job is to prove that at that point. So, mm-hmm. you know, from your professional standpoint, is that your number one witness that you're going to go to on this? No, the number one witness is going to be Bill Belichick. And that's only if you assume that Bill is going to tell the truth. You know, because... It, but when Bill sent the text essentially saying Brian Dayball got the job, I F this up by texting it to you. And this is three days before Flores interviews. I mean, that's that's witness number number one to point out that it's a sham interview. Well, we've got the language of the text messages. Yeah. And and I know you're going to try to parse this thing. And I don't want to I don't want to parse it because I do think that that words over text messages can get misunderstood pretty easily. It, you know, especially if you're not using emojis, um, which I use a ton of sarcasm. So if I don't put an emoji in there, everybody thinks I'm actually, you know, making fun of them and stuff. But, you know, um, Belichick said, and I quote, got it. I hear from Buffalo and New York Giants that you are their guy. I hope it works out if you want it to. Uh, and then Brian responds and says, that's definitely what I want. I hope you're the right coach. Uh, thank you. And then the next sentence says, coach, are you talking to Brian Flores or Brian Dabal? Just making sure. And Belichick responds, sorry, I effed this up. I double-checked and misread the text. I think they are naming Dabal. Sorry about that, BB. So, you know, it, you, clearly he's got some inside knowledge. And I, I, I can see why you're going to him to ask where he got that information. How concrete does that knowledge need to be? Because he's, he's a head coach of a different NFL organization. Is that link close enough for you to be able to make hay out of? Well, that would go to the way that the jury would put. I mean, it's obviously going to be admissible, but there's another section to the text where it says, this is his first text. Sounds like you have landed. Congrats. Now, I don't think he means landing a plane, (laughs) you know, and then uh, Flores says, did you hear something I didn't hear? And then Belichick Giants, question mark, exclamation mark, question mark, and it goes on and on. And then Brian says, I interview on Thursday. I think I have a shot at it. Bill Belichick, and this is the point I think Bill Belichick knows that he screwed up. Yeah. He writes, got it. I hear from Buffalo and NYG that you are their guy. Hope it works out if you want it to. Now, why would Bill waste his time sending a text message unless he has concrete information. And I believe the concrete information starts when he says, sounded like you have landed, congrats. And I, I think that's a, a pretty strong, pretty credible argument. I particularly, I mean, he uses exclamation points at the end of that. And then um, after Flores responds, did you hear something I didn't hear? It Belichick responds, Giants, question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point, and so on and so forth. You know, it it certainly does indicate that he's got knowledge that that decision has already been made. Now, it obviously, he doesn't say you definitely got the job. He's not in a position to be able to say that. I think anytime you, you talk about something you don't directly control, you're going to use a passive statement to indicate as much. But if he's gotten that information, you have to wonder where he got it from, whether or not he got it from ownership. And we know where he got it from. If, where, if Where'd he get it from? He got it from the Giants. 
Bill has this big relationship with the Giants. He used to coach there. So I, he got that information from the Giants. Bill is an insider. He has his pulse on everything. He's talking to GMs. And this comes down to whether Bill is going to tell the truth. Where did you get that information from? Who told you this? So-and-so from the Giants told me this. Do they have the ability to hire, hire a head coach? Yes, it was the GM, so-and-so. He told me this. Or it was uh, an executive. At that time, they didn't have a GM. But there's an executive that told me in. Or maybe I spoke, maybe he says I spoke to the owner and uh, they told me. So, but I believe this comes down to Bill Belichick. Now, for for example, say if Bill Belichick destroys the whole case, like, no, I was just making up stuff. And I, I just heard a rumor from uh, the janitor down the hall and me and the janitor, we have a good relationship. That guy, he does a great job at the Giants building and I, I love the Giants. So he does a great job just cleaning up. So I talk to him all the time. That's where I heard it from. Well, Flores still can go back to his sham interviews, which everyone knows the Rooney rule sort of pushes sham interviews. It does. When you're forced to interview a minority candidate, and a lot of times these owners have search firms and they've made their decisions well before the interviews, and the interview is just to kind of button it up. All right, this guy, yeah, this is the person I really want. So he could still go back to the sham interview process. And I think objectively, everyone knows that the Rooney rule produces sham interviews. And so that can be a measure where Flores can say, well, yeah, no matter what, I was never going to be hired during my race. And they only interview me because of the Rooney rule. But like I said, I hope I hope that uh, Bill Belichick, I wish he would have came out the day that these texts came out, just put this to bed, you know. Um, and said, yeah, I got this information from so-and-so, which leads me to believe that he got the information from a credible source uh, because the NFL could have just asked him, hey, Bill, come out and just say, no, you didn't. I mean, this would be put to bed. People would uh, make a big stink about it saying, oh, Bill's covering for the NFL, but it, this would be done. He, this text message would be done for. But the fact that he didn't do that and then he used to work at the Giants and he's Bill Belichick. Uh, I kind of think he knows what he's talking about. I mean, he hasn't worked at the Giants in 20 plus years. I mean, he's been with the Patriots since what, 99? Yeah, but he still has relationships. And I think we can all agree the NFL, that's a relationship based business. Yeah. Well, and so let's say you, you take it to that point. You say, all right, so now we have evidence that the Giants made their decision before they interviewed Brian Flores. Now, I don't, yes. I don't have a list and I have no idea who was on their list of interviewees. And I'm sure somebody does. I'm sure ESPN does somewhere. I don't. How do you tie that early decision? Let's say they interview the first guy, first guy knocks out of the park and you've scheduled the other interviews. You don't want to be a jerk. You don't want to cancel the other interviews. How do you go from that step, which is I've already made up my mind to this is discrimination based on race because we didn't even get through Brian before we, we found our man. So this goes back to this will go back to the elements in the McDonald Douglas test where Brian Flores, he's going to have to prove certain elements. And then the uh, giants are going to have to say, well, no, this is why we didn't hire him. He was terrible in the interviews, X, Y, Z. And we never intended on hiring Brian Dayball. We made him go through the interview process, but the sham interview helps Brian Flores when he has to prove pretext, basically know that this is a lie. So as, what you're saying is, is that Brian has a couple of elements that he's got to prove first. And then yep. once he satisfi satisfies that burden, 
the burden shifts to the defendant, which in this case is the NFL and or all of these different individual teams he's identified. What is the burden that the NFL teams have to meet to be able to defeat Brian's claim? It's simple, a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason. They could say, I didn't like the color of his shoes. And now that'll be hard to defeat Brian's portion pretext whenever he says, no, they're lying and here's why. But uh, yeah, they could go to say, well, we didn't, you know, just the way that he uh, that he came in, we asked him to uh, drop a couple of plays or tell us how he was going to fix the offense. Yeah, he's defensive minded, but we really want to know how he's going to fix up the offense. And uh, so that's why now that's why Brian Flores brings up the offensive coordinator issue that there are so few black offense coordinators. And so the fact that they would ask, Hey, how can we fix up the offense? And if they ask that in all their interviews, they could see how that could affect the black coaches who most of the black coordinators are defensive coordinators. So, but in order for him to uh, survive the pretext, he's going to have to prove that that this is all a lie, that they're lying about this, that and he has to directly rebut it. Well, I mean, to quote so the, whatever to quote the late great John Madden, you got to win by scoring points. You, you can't win a game unless you score points. I mean, I don't know how many games in a row I listen to him say that ad nausea. It isn't a question like that. Uh, you know, how are you going to fix this offense? One of the core questions for how an organization is going to want to hire that particular position of head coach. Yeah, and that's why they're going to have to file their Title VII claim because there are certain things that they can't talk about under 1981. And I don't want to get too in the weeds to that, but Mm. they did talk about the prevalence of offensive coordinators and how that's, you have to be an offense coordinator to get a head coaching job, but Blacks were thought to be inferior offensive minds. And so they were rarely given the opportunity to become a quarterback coach and then be promoted to offensive coordinator. And whenever you have those limited opportunities, then what are the odds of you getting to become a head coach if you have to have um, an offensive coordinator background and you never, ever had the opportunity to be an offensive coordinator because they thought you had an inferior offensive mind because you're black. So you're not just litigating this decision is essentially what I'm hearing. You're litigating probably decades worth of decisions in order to be able to prove your point. Because I would agree, if you if you have to be an offensive coordinator in order to make it to head coach, then you're in trouble if you're getting discriminated at three layers below where you're at. Yeah. So now Flores is different though. And I, I almost yeah, and he feel like if Flores won't get to make that argument until he files his Title Seven claim. So but I don't know that Flores is as beneficial to his lawsuit as I think he thinks he is because Flores is walking off of a head coaching position that he clearly got hired on. He had a losing record. He's 24 and 25 over three years. He had a number one overall draft choice. It was a quarterback that he flopped with. And Miami, Miami opened the season like one and eight. They had a brilliant second half of the season. They benefited from the fact that they had that extra week, uh, during the season to be able to, to pad that last win. But, you know, at, at what point in time can you look at this and say, Brian may not be the best example, even though he's the most visible example, even though he may be the most angry about this because it's happened to him the most recently, but he's already benefited. He's already been hired as a coach. So isn't that sort of an Achilles heel 
in his own lawsuit? Not necessarily. Um, the record can be misleading. So his first year, obviously, they have teams not good. That's why they had to hire a new coach. So the fact that he won five games was a miracle. And that's kind of when things soured with the owner because he was winning too many games. But after that, he each year he's one game away from going to the playoffs. You know, so it's skewed because of that first year. But also when he was fired, if you watched the reports, everyone was shocked. Everyone was shocked. Back-to-back winning seasons, which hadn't been done since, I believe, 2003 for the Miami Dolphins. Tua, he had to deal with a ton of quarterbacks, I believe like four or five. Um, Tua wasn't great. He couldn't get off of them because that was the owner's pick. And so does he really deserve to be fired? And then they compare it to the leash that white coaches get. And so that's where he has his gripe. And he's, for example, Matt Patricia. If, for example, David Culley, who the Texans, they traded away all the veterans. DeAndre Hopkins was gone. He was gone two years before that. But J.J. Watt was gone. And they traded away a bunch of veterans. David Culley comes in. I believe he wins two or three games, and then they fire him after one season. Is that fair? And then there's no example of that happening to a white coach. And so that's his argument, that these sorts of things that keep happening to the minority coaches, it's a terms and conditions of employment. This isn't happening to the white coaches. Why is that? Now, obviously, his position and my position, too, it has something to do with race. But uh, the next party is going to be obviously convincing a jury of but whenever you look at david Colley, they traded everyone away he wins three or four games and they fire him after one season did he really have a chance no and i mean uh, you know south florida has a tradition of that though i think that needs to be pointed out the marlins are horrible um and on and off jeter's taken over most recently but there was a couple of fire fire sale years that the marlins had where they won a world series i think what was that oh three and they had this fire sale in 04. They traded all the good players to pretty much everybody else, but Boston got a haul out of it. Boston goes to the World Series the next year. And whoever, I don't even remember who was skipper at that point, but whoever's in there has got a bunch of nobodies that are trying to play baseball. They're going to lose. They're in a, a division that's got a lot of competition. Can, can the Marlins go out and say, look, you know, NFL is a, a difficult area to do Uh, percentages because we're all competing against each other and there's only 32 teams. But if you look in sports in general, our decision is not outside the realm of our industry, which is sports entertainment. And this happens in baseball with tanking all the time. Why is it inappropriate for it to happen here? Why is it race-based here? Whereas in baseball, it's, it's a strategic decision to get, you know, Bryce Harper in the next draft. Well, if you're talking about uh, tanking in general, uh, it would be, Well, looking at the complaint, they don't necessarily go into tanking, but my theory on it and others, and if you see people talking about on ESPN and news stations, is that they'll get the black coach to tank. They'll get the number one overall pick. The black coach will usually be defensive-minded, so they get to fire the black coach and say, hey, we need an offensive mind, a genius, to coach up our new number one overall pick. And that's usually how it happens. And then the black coach, he has this stain 
of a terrible record, although he was probably doing what the owner wanted. Um, and so he's never going to get hired again. And then in comes the white coach with the brand new quarterback that he gets to train up. And it's kind of his pick too with the GM. And so, but that becomes an issue where if you're a black coach, if you tank, you're going to have that stain. And then people will be like, well, it's not racism. Look at his record. Look at his record. His record's terrible. Well, yeah, but you were doing what the owner wanted. And then as soon as you get close to having the prize, the prize quarterback, then boom, you're fired. And they bring in an offensive guru who's almost always a white guy. And you stand no chance. And, and also as a black coach, whenever you're fired, you rarely see a second opportunity. And Brian Flores pointed that out in his lawsuit as well. So this Lovey Smith aside. Yeah, only Lovey Smith. And he got the third chance. And but you have to remember Lovey Smith. He went to a Super Bowl, and then the year after, I believe he goes to the playoffs and they fire him. That made no sense. Zero. You Although look at I think- Tony Dungy, uh, what he did, he gets, he's winning, he, and he turned that culture around. He's winning, and they get rid of him. Now, obviously, because I'm from Tampa and I, I love the Bucs, and so I was happy John Gruden came in and got the Super Bowl, but I, I don't like John as much now, knowing what I know about him, but he <laughs> certainly was a, a good coach, though. You can't take that away from him. And um, so you see those sorts of things happening and it's, you wonder, you wonder why, you know, and that's part of the circumstantial evidence. You really wonder why. So I know this, this rests with the jury and, and I don't know about you, but every time I have anything that goes to a judge or a jury, I usually tell my client ahead of time, look, everybody in the brother knew OJ Simpson was guilty, except for the 12 people that mattered. And so all you really care about is those 12 people or, or six people, depending on the type of claim. Um, and they may not make the decision that you think that they should. There's a lot of risk that goes into that for them. How do you gauge that risk as you're bringing a case like this that's based heavily on circumstantial evidence? How do you account for that? How do you prepare for that? What do you do with your jury to be able to, to try to come to a predictable outcome? Well, because it's a federal case, they won't get for dire, but you want to get rid of the worst jurors. So sending out your questionnaire, you'll ask a certain types of questions, which I'm not going to go through here. That's strategy that we have, but, and you try to get rid of the worst jurors and you try to get them out for cause. And, but yeah, it's going to ultimately be up to the jury, but this sort of case, win, lose or draw, it's, I believe there's a greater good by bringing this case the sort of conversations that we will have by bringing this case. Now, in the beginning, kind of now, are we all going to talk past each other? There's no such thing as systemic racism, X, Y, Z. But as time goes on, some of us will look back, all right, maybe Flores wasn't discriminating, but there is a problem in the NFL a little bit. It's, it does seem kind of fishy. So maybe that's the end game. But I, I, what I believe uh, Brian's counsel strategy is that they want to get to discovery. And I believe the NFL, they will settle monetarily, but they will also settle with agreeing to certain changes uh, because there's no way that Brian Flores, the type of person that he seems to be, is going to just take the money and run. You know, even if, for example, even if he is greedy, he wouldn't want that. Uh, that mark on him that he just took the money and ran. So he would want them to settle and, you know, say, yeah, we agree to do this and we agree to do that and have a hiring committee instead of just letting the owner do it 
we have a hiring, maybe a diverse hiring committee. We can't say it's going to be just diverse based on race, but diversity of thought, you know, and uh, experiences. So I believe that will happen. But his obviously his biggest hurdle is going to be that arbitration agreement. But for our discussion, if he does make it to the jury, I think when lose or draw, he'll be at. No. I really do. Kaepernick a couple of years ago tried this. I mean, I, Kaepernick is enough of a different case um, that I have trouble seeing a whole lot of correlations aside from the basic claims. But do you see the NFL doing the same thing they did with Kaepernick, which was I felt like they settled with him. God knows how much money. It may have just been his attorney's fees only. You never know. Yeah. But he made that that noise. He's he's a highly visible figure in this area of law at this point. He's cited in Brian Flores's. Uh, lawsuit. Um, do you see the NFL doing the same thing where, okay, there's going to be an undisclosed sum of money in order to save face. And then we're going to give you a specific chance again. Cause remember Kaepernick had that, that tryout in Atlanta that, that was, watched like an it, that was so, that was a sham opportunity. They made him sign a, a sham opportunity. Well, they made him sign a waiver, basically releasing them of all liability, which could be read that he could never bring a claim against them even for the discrimination that they, that they had against them before. So that's why in signing, he said, no, well, I'm not going to sign it. Let's just go down the street, you know, and uh, I'm going to have my work out there. You guys, it's only 30 minutes away. You guys just come down here. Instead, you guys are springing this on me right before the tryout. We didn't negotiate this thing beforehand. Now, generally, players don't get to negotiate that sort of thing. No, but the NFL should have saw that this was a different situation. Uh, but at the end of the day, the NFL, they were winning that PR battle so they could do whatever they wanted to Kaepernick, Well, you I, know, so Kaepernick's in a much different spot too. I mean, Kaepernick, he had been benched in San Francisco. He opted out of his own contract, which we know because they were going to cut him. That's we why don't, we don't know that. We don't know that. No, There's well, no way there for reports. There were, why would he just, I, I mean, yeah, but at, the reports were that he opt that he was going to be cut, and then so he decided to opt out so he could go seek other opportunities. Well, and that's that's a player who you know you, you hear that from a lot of people. I believe in myself. I'm going to sign a one year prove it contract, and then I'm going to go explore other opportunities. Or I'm mm-hmm. being underutilized in this team, or this is not not the right offense for me. If you put me in a better situation, I'm going to do better. Uh, you know, Marcus Mariota going out to to um, Las Vegas, I think is a, a good example of somebody who probably had a lot more in the tank left and was just looking for the right opportunity. That may have been Kaepernick's basis, but from a legal standpoint, from a legal analysis, the facts are Kaepernick was benched. He wasn't very good. He opted out of his own contract and, and essentially lost the value of that contract and then made himself toxic by doing what I think the general public viewed to be a series of stunts when it came to having a second chance. And whether or not he should have negotiated that or not, I, I wonder if Brian's lawsuit is going to be hampered by the way that Kaepernick handled himself earlier. He does, like I said, he cites it. Do you- he, so Brian Flores, is he's taking all the criticism that Kaepernick had, and he's doing the opposite so far. So, for example, uh, Kaepernick was constantly ridiculed by people on TV, Stephen A. Smith saying, well, if you really want to play football, come out and tell us, come out and tell us you're, you're quiet. You haven't said anything. You, you, you don't want to play football. You haven't said anything. So what did Brian Flores do? He goes on TV and constantly says, I want to be a coach. So they can't use that line against him. Uh, 
Brian Flores gets offered a job as an inside linebackers coach yeah. whenever he was the D coordinator for the Patriots and a former head coach. And he takes that job. Why? Because people would be like, oh, well, see, look, they tried to offer him a job. He didn't take it. He doesn't have to take the, the job that's equivalent to being a janitor whenever he was middle management. He doesn't have to do that. But he did it anyways because he knew if he didn't, then people would run out there and say, oh, he doesn't want to coach. He, he's, he's just making this all up. This is just all a publicity stunt. And so he's, he's, he saw the faults of Kaepernick that I believe Kaepernick was well-intentioned, but the PR machine at that time, the president calling people, calling players SOBs. And so there, there was just no way for him to win. Um, so I believe Brian Flores is making good decisions. Also, one other thing, they always said to Kaepernick, okay, how do you solve it? All right, you keep talking about police brutality. How do you solve it? That's why Brian Flores put in things that he knew what the court would never agree to with the injunctions and forcing the companies to do it. That's why I put in his lawsuit. So people can't come out and say, well, he has no solutions. He's just complaining. So all these missteps that Kaepernick made, Brian Flores is trying to make the right moves. And he, he doesn't want to uh, kind of fall in the same traps that Kaepernick did. Well, and, and like I said, I think Flores is a stronger argument than Kaepernick's in general. I think Kaepernick. I, I, listen, I don't, I don't agree. I think Kaepernick, Blaine Gabbert is still, is still in the league. He's backup. Why couldn't Kaepernick be a backup on a team? I don't think Kaepernick wanted to be a backup. I, it, now, hold on. A couple of minutes ago, you said that he was leaving for opportunities to be a starter. He could have gotten I never cut. said he was leaving to be a starter. Well, I just said he, he opted out for other opportunities. And opportunity to be a it's easy somewhere? for possibly or to compete for a job, just to compete for a job. Well, and it, so and so you had other teams, I'm sure, that were looking for quarterbacks. I mean, I don't know the exact year whenever Kaepernick did this, but the big guys were Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, uh, Russ uh, Wilson, Russell Wilson. And so, I mean, not every team had a franchise quarterback. No. And so they should have given the guy who went to the Super Bowl. <laughs> they should have at least given him a real look, but for his, uh, his, his kneeling and then lawsuit, they said, no, nah, we don't, no, we're not, we're not doing this. No, we're not going to bring you in. And now the issue is, okay, were they doing it for the kneeling, which they're allowed to do, or were they doing it because of the lawsuit, which is illegal retaliation? Yeah. And so, so that's the biggest issue, but I, I 100% believe that the NFL retaliated against Colin Kaepernick. There's no way that he is not better than Blaine Gabbert as a backup. There's no way. There, it, no one can tell me that. That Blaine Gabbert still in the league. So whatever team he was on at that time, at that starting quarterback, I heard Blaine Gabbert was going to go into the game. That just, it just boggles my mind. It See, does. I, and I'm on the other side of that. I I play fantasy football. I don't. I watch as many of the games as I can get to, but we're on the East Coast. We're in the Southeast. It's pretty much the Bucks, occasionally the Saints, and you might get a primetime game that's good, but we don't get yeah. daytime games or any good. And we yeah. we yeah, certainly don't get them. The internet. Yeah, we certainly don't get them on the other side of the, the country either. So I didn't watch a lot of Kaepernick. Um, I watched his stats. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of that type of quarterback that have been in and out of the NFL where they're real flashy, they can run, uh, they can throw for a little bit until the defense is figuring them out. And you have to wonder if that's what's going on with Tyrod Taylor right now. Uh, not Tyrod Taylor. Um, oh, who's Baltimore's quarterback? That's so good. Lamar Jackson. Yeah, Lamar Jackson. His team is terrible. 
His it team is got off. So but he's got he a couple no good wide receivers. Weapons. No, his wide receivers are terrible. He constantly has to throw it to the tight end who's not that great, but he had to get paid because somebody had to get paid. They have to use up the salary cap. But his team is got off. Well, the next and time they're looking for somebody to pay, takes a snap. I can play. Yeah, and they team. have to pay someone because they have to use a certain percentage of the salary cap. So it was just his turn, time to be up <laughs> the tight end, and he was getting force-fed the ball. Yeah, well, more power to him for being able to get paid. At least he's doing something. So, you know, the last... I think last season, 2021, really. Um, And towards the tail end of 2020, there was a lot of social justice initiatives undertaken by most of professional organized sports. Uh, Soccer did it internationally. Soccer did it. Baseball did it to some degree or another. Uh, NFL did it uh, to a lesser extent than the NBA did. I think the NBA was probably at the top of that list. I have no idea what the NHL did. I, I don't watch NHL. But do you think that some of the statements, the mea culpas that the NFL made, that Goodell made in 2020 and 2021 are going to come back and haunt him in this lawsuit. Um, yeah, but whenever you get to a jury, I don't think so, because I think everyone knows that this is a problem. You know, I think everyone can kind of see that, yeah, they have a problem with hiring minority coaches. Uh, but you could parse these statements two ways in which they're like, yeah, there's a problem hiring minority coaches. It's not because we're discriminating against them because they're unqualified. I mean, they could always go that route. Those statements uh, from the VP in which they kind of say, yeah, there is a problem hiring minority coaches. It could come back to bite them, but not necessarily because I believe that Every reasonable objective person can kind of see there is a problem. You know, there is a problem. 70% black players. And if the pool of coaches are coming from the black players, then why aren't there? Why is there only one or two black head coaches? Uh, But at the same time, they could always just say, well, yeah, there's a problem hiring minority coaches. But the problem isn't because we're discriminating against them. It's because they don't have the qualifications or, uh, We just aren't training enough uh, black offensive coordinators and that we're not doing it because discrimination, because most of black coaches, they want to do defense. And so they could have all these excuses and kind of waffle around these statements. But I don't think these statements help or hurt. I think most reasonable people know that the NFL sort of has this problem and that just the opposite side of the coin is like, so what? So what if they have this problem? They could hire whoever they want. And I think that's the sort of sentiment that uh, Brian Flores is going to have to battle. Well, and I do think that that's going to be a pretty prevalent sentiment. And I, I think when you talk about a jury, assuming he gets to a jury, I do think that the NFL statements play very well in Brian's favor because now you're not debating about whether or not there's a problem because you got the guys in charge saying there's a problem. Now, they're not the Miami Dolphins. They're not the New York Giants. They're not the Texans who may and, and have the Dolphins have come out swinging may come back and say, wait, we don't have a problem. And the Dolphins have the best argument because we hired him. So we clearly don't have a problem. Um, But with the NFL making this sort of a a comment, I think that when you're in front of these 12 people, you're going to see somebody say, okay, well, it's already settled that the NFL is a discrimination problem. And even if that discrimination problem isn't at head coach, it's at offensive coach. And if we can't get anybody past offensive coach, we're never going to get anybody to head coach. I think that the Brian's got that much stronger of a position going in. And that's where you're going to have to see these teams start going. Like, like you said, 
we didn't hire this guy because of this. We didn't hire that guy because of that. We didn't hire this other guy because of this other thing. You know, and you wonder for as much as, as Brian might gain from discovery, you wonder how much things that have not previously come to light may suddenly make it in front of the limelight about as to why some of these coaches were unhirable that may not be public knowledge. And you look at, you know, again, baseball, because I know baseball, Ron Washington had a substance abuse problem. I don't know if it was alcohol or if it was something else. He was coach of the Rangers for a number of years, and he ended up leaving that post. And he's an African-American, very good coach, left that post in order to be able to deal with this drug or addiction problem that he had um, and to work on his marriage, which I think is commendable because he's put his life in the order that he feels like is appropriate. But do you think that being in this lawsuit as a plaintiff, you've opened yourself up to have a bunch of your skeletons thrown out on the mat? And they say, you know what? We didn't hire you because you have a drug problem or because you're, you know, Urban Meyer and you've, we just watched that complete meltdown with him dancing with women at bars randomly when he's married. Um, do you think that that's going to be something that catches up to these guys? Uh, certainly. And, but anyone who joins this lawsuit, they're ready for that fight. I mean, uh, Brian Flores has said it time and time again, he knows the NFL is going to come after him. He knows they're going to charge at him, but what's relevant to this case is what they knew at the time. You know, so if you felt like Brian Flores and just speaking out here that he's a drug addict or something like that, well, why the heck did you interview? You know, yeah. so and they can't go and say that, well, he wasn't qualified. Well, no, you gave him the interview because you thought he was qualified. And so but a lot of these Brian Flores, he's ready for the fight. He doesn't care what comes out. At least that's what he says now. I think it's and clear. Anyone else. Yeah. And anyone else who joins this lawsuit. Um, I think they're ready for whatever the NFL throws at them. So here's the million dollar question. Does Brian Flores win this or does this go down as a loss like Kaepernick? I, I know I have to choose, but I think it'll be. Don't take the uh, lawyer answer. Don't go down the middle. It's not worth I'll just it, just quickly say this. It will be settled. But I believe that he will win. I think uh, that they're going to get the right jury on this. I think. Uh, and then also they have the arbitration issues. But we're just saying that he gets past that and they decide to take it to court. Yeah. I think he has a strong case because Bill Belichick is going to tell the truth. You got a lot of faith in a guy up. who's got more scandals in the NFL in the last 20 years than anybody else. And he, this is a guy that when I'm trying to figure out what my starting lineup is, is not going to give me his injury report on time. And if he does, it's going to be pulled out of left field. You, you seem pretty confident that Belichick's going to be honest about this. I don't know that he's got I that mean, track record. <laughs> I'm just giving a hot take, man. I know that he could easily just lie, and but Bill's going to be under oath. He wasn't under oath with the injury report and things like that, and everyone else does it. As well, and, well, and Brian's his friend too, as I understand it. Uh, Brian worked for him for a few years as defensive head. I don't uh, know if Bill actually has I feel like friends. They had a relation in the. <laughs> yeah, no, I I think he's like you worked for me, and uh, so I'll be loyal to you because you gave me so much, but. Are they really calling each other up on the phone? And, you know, I don't know. Look at the text. He uses a lot of exclamation points for a guy. But who that was to who? That was to Dayball. Well, see, he, that was supposed to be to Dayball. After that, it gets cold. Whenever he realizes that it's Flores, it gets cold. <laughs> Flores gets cold. He stops. He stops calling him coach and he calls him Bill. He's like, <laughs> thanks, Bill. So, <laughs> so I, I that, that was meant for Dayball. Brian Dayball, it wasn't meant for Brian Flores. So we don't really know the extent of their relationship, but I see Bill That's as a loyal guy. 
And uh, but you see the way that he treated Tom Brady and everything, who did so much. For him. So, well, I don't, know. I don't think Belichick has anything to lose at this point. I think he is in his position for life. I have a hard time believing Kraft's ever going to fire him. I think he is in a unique position to be able to well, speak out. He didn't. That. Yeah, he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't. He didn't say don't hire Brian Flores because he's black. This isn't his fault. This isn't you know the people that would be in trouble here is are the the Giants and the NFL. So I, that's why I would hope that he would come out and tell us who told him this. A lot of this stuff could be put to bed if he just came out and said, all right, yes, so-and-so told me this. Go get their phone, their phone records if you don't believe me, X, Y, Z. Now, that they sent me this text on this at this time or we talked on the phone or Zoom or something like that and, and that this could be resolved. But the fact that he's so quiet about it you know, it's, I, I don't know. Yeah. And I, you never know with Belichick and he could be getting legal counsel from behind the scenes saying, don't say anything publicly. We'll deal with this when this particular bridge comes. Um, but I mean, it, it's certainly a compelling storyline. I don't know that it really ends up making a hill of beans a difference in the long run. My personal feeling is that no matter what happens in this lawsuit, they're going to start doing the Rooney interviews first. And I mean, I think every one of those teams next year, is going to start out with their minority interview straight away. And they're not going to tell anybody what they think about it. It's going to be treated as a trade secret, like you would assume that it would, because theoretically yeah. there's competition for head coaches. And if everybody wants the same head coach, you know, you're not going to tell the other guys that you're, you're talking to them yet. But, you know, I, I think, I think that they're going to have that hard time establishing that the head coach position is being denied on a basis of race or skin color unless they can make the case that is like you pointed out in order to get to that position in this era of the game, you have to be an offensive coordinator. And there's actually this layer of discrimination that exists below head coach where there's a lot more offensive coordinators over the years, but for whatever reason, there's this discrimination that prevents African-Americans or any other minority from getting up to into that position. Therefore, because we have the prior act, we now have uh, effectively discrimination downstream. If they can establish that, I think they've got a pretty good and credible argument without needing to have Belichick come out as your smoking gun witness. I, I, I agree what you're saying, but why not all push Belichick to do the right thing here? I mean, why do we have to be so formal? Yes, Belichick, go get your lawyer and take your lawyer's advice. I don't see uh, any liability for, for Belichick, but obviously I don't know everything behind the scenes, but why can't he just be a good human being and come out and so we could resolve this? Well, you know? and, but that that's under the assumption that he knows something that's, that's improper. Yeah, but rather then than just why doesn't he come out? He could come out and say, yeah, I was just making it up. No, you know, I thought I heard client. something. Sometimes you tell your client, don't talk to anybody. You've already, you already know, stepped in it. What else are you going to say? That's going to get interpreted. Why? But he stepped in what? Well, he's he's the subject. He's the headline. If you look at the very top line of the complaint, yeah, but he's not in trouble. What did he do wrong legally? That well, I don't think he did anything wrong. I, I that's but that's what I'm saying. So why can't he just come out? This isn't like a police investigation where even if you're guilty or innocent, don't you dare talk to them because they're going to find a way to, <laughs> to arrest you. This isn't that sort of issue. This issue would be resolved if Belichick just came out of his hidey hole and said, "You know what." I was making all this up. I heard some rumors, but I wasn't hundred percent sure, but I want to text my friend Dayball, you know, to give him encouragement and let him know that I think he's getting the job or he can come out and say, yeah, so-and-so VP told me this, 
and I have it on good authority. I'm not going to waste my time texting someone without definitive proof. He could come out and say that. And then everybody could, you know, we could not move on, but we'll know where this sort of lawsuit stands, especially whenever it comes to Bill Belichick, you know? So I, I, me, I, I wish he'd come out and just say something, you know, kind of how they want a Kaepernick to come out every day and say, you want to play quarterback. I wish Bill would speak up. I wish he would just come out and say something and say, one hey, you know what? I made this up or yeah, one way or the other. And then everybody can pick sides after that. Yeah. Well, I think it'll be interesting. Thank you very much for going on with me about this for an hour and a half or however long it's been. I appreciate the <laughs> position and the opinion. Now it just from a professional standpoint, um, you know, we talked about this type of, of cases being something that you handle on a pretty regular basis. Um, you know, is there, is there a lot of other areas of employment law that sort of suffer from the same sort of big guy versus little guy kind of a problem? I mean, it's uh, employment law in general. It's usually the employee versus the corporation. Um, so if you have an FMLA claim, a disability claim, I mean, you're still, it's that one plaintiff and he or she is fighting a massive corporation worth billions of dollars on the stock exchange. So uh, we handle FMLA cases, ADA cases, and discrimination based on race and sex cases. All right. Well, thanks again for being with me today. And I, I think we'll have to have some follow-up conversations as this thing develops. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Unless they settle it and don't disclose anything and this thing just dies a quiet death. That's going to be, that'll be awful. That would. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Follow the Federalist Outpost on Twitter, Gitter, and Substack.